This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut, Babette. We would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, from whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR, and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. The burning question is what form of climate action works? I often find I'm the only one recording at various rallies and meetings And I'm surprised when the ABC turns up. I know then that it must be something important. I was delighted when I was at a secret location talking to people from Blockade Australia and the ABC's Jeff Thompson turned up. He did the recent background briefing where he follows Blockade Australia people and gives them a very fair hearing. But it's also very interesting because he talks to their lawyer I also reported on their efforts to dramatise how the whole system of finance and government, business as usual, needs to be in the spotlight. But when I talk to family and friends, they say, well, I get it when they lock onto a coal loader or slow down the port. That's climate action. That's connected to coal and gas. But putting the, your body in the way of the whole system the traffic. I don't get it. So I went to one of Extinction Rebellion's favourite authors, and so here's Erica Chernowith talking to Shankar Vedanta on the hidden brain. Erica Chernowith's done a lot of uh, research on what works and how many people you need to get radical action. At Harvard University, political scientist Erica Chenoweth studies the effectiveness of political protest. Along with Maria Stefan, Erica has studied more than 100 years of struggles for radical change around the world. These included both violent and nonviolent revolutions and insurrections. They found that nonviolent campaigns were twice as likely to succeed as violent campaigns. Violent forms of protest might get a lot of press and attention, but they tend to invite harsh repression from authorities and also to turn off potential allies. Erica and Maria have discovered four key factors that explain why nonviolent movements appear to be increasingly more effective than violent insurrections. The first factor is mass participation. So movements that win tend to be much larger and more diverse than movements that don't. And nonviolent campaigns tend to be able to elicit much larger and more diverse participation than armed campaigns. The second factor is the ability of the campaigns to divide and rule the opponent by shifting the loyalties of people within various pillars of support. So the larger the base becomes for a movement, the more likely it is that participants in the movement will have direct ties to people in the opponent's pillars of support, um, like economic and business elites, uh, important politicians, um, civil servants, uh, state media, uh, different types of uh, police or security forces or other authorities, local government and, and local authorities. And you know, the more those connections begin to be embedded within the movement, the more likely it is that the movement can maneuver in ways that begin to really shred the loyalties, <laughs> you know, of people in those pillars of support. The third factor is the ability of movements to tactically innovate, especially moving away from mass demonstrations, rallies, and protests, and more into forms of non-cooperation, like strikes, stay-at-homes, and kind of undermining power for the opponent. And, um, and that's really the, the main thing is that these movements aren't out there to like melt the heart of the dictator, you know, um, they're out there to uh, remove the bases of the dictator's support. So that's a really key distinction. And, and I think is probably what leads a lot of people to think that nonviolent resistance campaigns are naive, is that they think they're trying to like change the mind of a, a brutal uh, dictator when they're not, they're trying to, um, 
win a political fight among uh, people who are neutral, um, who are kind of sympathetic to the regime but not actively supporting it, and certainly among people that are sympathetic to the movement but not actively supporting it. And then the fourth factor that seems to be really important is uh, for the movement to be able to develop some kind of organizational resilience and discipline uh, so that when or if repression escalates, that the movement is able to continue to recruit, to continue to maneuver as it needs to uh, without falling into disarray. And often what disarray means is, you know, some people start to say we need to use violence now and they just go do that, um, you know, without any kind of uh, organizational cohesion. And so uh, we know that organizational cohesion leads to lots of things that help movements, including discipline. So the, I just want to go back to one of the points you, you made, the, the idea that in some ways the central goal of these movements is to expand their base of support, to bring more people in, to, to sort of feel like the movement is a mass movement. Uh, talk a little bit about the work that you've done that examines how large a movement needs to be in order to be effective. Because when I saw this, I was actually struck by in some ways how small that number actually needs to be. Right. Maria, Stefan, and I analyzed about 323 cases of maximalist campaigns or revolutionary campaigns. And I found that none of the campaigns seemed to have failed after mobilizing 3.5% of the population. And 3.5% is a, a small number in relative terms, but very large in absolute terms. So in the United States, that's like 11.5 million people. In China, it's many tens of millions of people. Um, and so then we start to get a sense of the scale. It's worth pausing for a moment and sitting with that finding. Erica found that movements that mobilized about 3.5% of the population succeeded pretty much everywhere. But before you think it's easy to organize and execute a mass movement for change, Erica has a few caveats about that data point that it only counts participation. It doesn't necessarily look at supporters of the movement or sympathizers with the movement. And so it can be easy to sort of conclude, uh, I think wrongly, that all you need is 3.5% of the population on your side. I don't think that's what the data say. It says that, you know, countries in which there have been 3.5% of the population actively mobilized at a, at, in, a, in a sort of peak period are extremely unlikely to lose. Um, but that could be because they have already elicited like 90% of the population's support or, you know, something along those lines. So the way that I think about the 3.5% rule is really more of a rule of thumb <laughs> rather than an iron law. So um, those are the unknowns that, that make me cautious about kind of over-interpreting um, the rule. So direct action does get results if there's a big enough swell behind it. And here are some voices from the Sydney Climate Rally of August the 7th, organised by the Knitting Nanas and Water for Rivers. There were speakers from Amnesty International, Bob Brown Foundation, who'd had a recent win in the federal court where a mine expansion in the Tarkine has been stopped for the moment. This is climate action you realise because keeping forests intact as carbon sinks is one of the greatest acts of climate action you can take. And over nearly 100 people were arrested over their period protesting. The people you hear today are Abigail Boyd, Greens member of the New South Wales Legislative Council. She's talking about her opposition to the harsh new laws to shut down protests in Sydney, New South Wales, really. And then Rilke from Blockade Australia, she participated in that big action uh, to shut down the city. Paul Keating, who's the Sydney Branch Secretary of the Maritime Union of Australia, and Paddy Gibson from Workers for Climate Action. Here's Abigail Boyd. We're in an emergency. We're in a, in a climate emergency. I know it. You know it. The vast majority of Australians know it. Why don't our politicians know it? I tell you what, I think they do know it. 
43% is a start, but we all know that the science tells us we need to do so much better if we're actually going to avoid catastrophic climate change. So why aren't our governments acting? State government, the new federal government, why are they being just so crap when it comes to action on climate? Because putting in, in place a lousy target is, is one thing, but even to meet that 43%, you can't get there while still approving you know, like new coal and gas. You just can't. So how serious can they actually be with this target that they know they can't meet unless they do what the scientists are telling them? No new coal and gas. It is that simple. And when we stop lying to people, we can actually start planning and transitioning communities, looking after workers, and getting us on track to decarbonising the economy. It's not difficult, but it's really difficult to do any of that great planning if you've got your head in the sand and you're ignoring the science. And the reason I say that I think they're pretty bloody clear that they are underperforming, uh, and I say to you that these politicians know full well that they're not doing enough, is because they're trying to silence us. And so in the New South Wales Parliament, we passed some of the most draconian anti-protest laws in the world. Shame. And why did they do that? Because people like you, people like Blockade Australia, made them really uncomfortable. You caused them inconvenience. And people in power don't like to be made to feel uncomfortable, particularly when they are captured by the fossil fuel industry. And so we have been pushing to get the New South Wales Parliament to reverse those laws because what is really shocking is that Labor joined with them. Labor joined with the coalition government to make it so that you could be put in jail for two years for standing in your own city without police approval. You can only have a police-sanctioned protest on a police-sanctioned topic in a police-sanctioned place. It is absolutely absurd. And heavens forbid you try and organise a protest. You might end up with a few police hiding in the bushes trying to capture some footage to try and make it look like you are aiding and abetting or doing something that would throw you in jail prematurely. It is an absolute disgrace. And shame on Labour for forgetting its base. Shame on Labour for turning its backs on the entire union movement who oppose those anti-protest laws and the entirety of civil society. Every single organisation came together and told them not to do this. And yet they did it because the fossil fuel companies are telling them to. And it is that simple. So thank you so much for coming out because we have 35 organisations. This is how we win. We build an alliance, we stay close, we stick together. Because together, united, we cannot be defeated. So thank you. Keep raising your voice. Next week, I will be trying once again to move a disallowance of those stupid anti-protest laws. And I will keep trying. I will keep raising that issue. Because it is anti-democratic. And it is absolutely shameful. But take comfort. Take comfort in the knowledge that if you weren't as effective in your climate campaigning, they wouldn't have felt so uncomfortable to do it in the first place. We just have to keep going. Thank you. When you compare an old growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests, slow down the path of fire and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically these big large fires have been quite rare but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common so we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. 
We need to keep radical voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. Sydney Town Hall and Rilke speaks up for Blockade Australia. We, yeah, we believe that you know serious disruption will will cause the change, and we know sustained disruption works. Um, we shut down the, the port of Newcastle, the world's biggest coal port. institutions are hammering us. Um, there was another sustained blockade of a bottleneck of Australia's supply chains of this business as usual that is destroying the climate and um, we shut down the port of botany for um, 10 hours over 11 days um, and yeah that resulted in the police creating a task force that main aim was to stop us protesting, to stop any peaceful protests we've had, um, you know, we've had to pay money, money bail, we've had multiple people being arrested and prevented from protests, we had our camp raided and thankfully we managed to just foil that plan a little bit, we still had seven people arrested, they were prevented from protesting, we had two people in jail for three weeks. Um, for thought crimes, for planning to block a road. And it's important to note that if sentenced, that would be a minor offence, just, just, you know, a $400 fine. So it's clear that what we're doing is effective because we're, you know, the, Australia is coming down hard on us. And yeah, like it was really hard, that mobilisation in Sydney. We, we still managed to mobilise, we still managed to, um, shut down the harbour tunnel and have hundreds of people on the street but it was it was really hard and it wasn't empowering but what is empowering and what is encouraging is how much support we've had and it, the movement is bigger and the network is bigger than ever and you know that's really encouraging and I think what else you know helps is that the facade of Australia is becoming clearer it is very clear to see how these institutions use these laws and treat people and it's not a misuse of power it is how these powers can be used and how they are used and yeah I think the next step is just you know we need to be developing this network we need to be coming together under what we agree on and start realizing that all of these different campaigns we are all fighting for the same thing and let's focus on yeah what unites us and yeah we, we, we come together and Make more change because we know we need it. Paul Keating represents the MUA and many other unionists who are appalled by new police powers. These laws are the most authoritarian anti-democratic laws this country has seen and in fact in the Western world, the developed world. And there's a reason. We've seen governments come and go, politicians uh, that have been weak, and have not stood up for our communities when, it's come, when it comes to climate action. Therefore, we come out, the people, to defend what we need to so that we can live with the dignity of life and our children and the future of, uh, you know, the people and the communities we come from. So I'm here to talk about these anti-protest laws and what it's meant. We said, to the Labor Party, and I've got to say, I've got to acknowledge I'm not in the Greens Party. The Greens Party here are fighting this awful law in Parliament, taking it up for our communities and power to them. And the only way we're back in any politician, any community, any group that's defending the interest of our communities. We have a climate crisis and nothing's been done. And that's why the people come out to protest. It has always been our right. The union movement is united in our anger with this law that did get the green light.
from the New South Wales Labor politicians. And shame on them. And we'll campaign on them as well. But what it's also done has given uh, the rise to more police powers. The politicians that I met with and other trade union leaders said that wouldn't happen. It wouldn't happen. Well, I was here yesterday commemorating the 77th anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima, a crime against humanity. Uh, and an, an awful lesson to be learned where tens of thousands of people were killed and murdered. And we should never forget uh, the awful nature of nuclear power and bombs. And not one police officer was here. Not one. Now we see a whole host of them. All these coppers, I mean, you think they'd have something better to do. Even the big boss of the coppers standing in front of us here. Well, we won't be intimidated. Uh, we're disgusted that you come down instead of defending the communities. Uh, and the trade union movement is united in its position to challenge this disgraceful anti-protest law. And we are taking that to the courts. We believe it's not legitimate. It breaks the uh, legitimacy under the Constitution and we'll be fighting on that ground. But the history of the working class has been this. All bad laws have always been fought against by us. We have engaged in collective uh, solidarity to defend our interests, whether it's been the peace movement, anti-war, First Nations justice, climate action, trade union rights, the list goes on. These, these uh, uh, anti-protest laws criminalise uh, the right to protest, criminalise. And we see the rise of the, the powers of the police, which they said, no, it wouldn't happen. The very idea that we've got to put in a permit as what was said by a speaker earlier, to protest, to march, is, is unheard of around the world. It doesn't happen. And yet we do it here in New South Wales. Well, we've got to abolish the whole system and build it back up. I want, I want to talk about also the climate crisis. Because for workers, workers should not have to pay for this. No community should be left behind. And with the change that we need, uh, if this planet's got any chance of survival, uh, in fact, the human race, we need to make sure that our communities are brought along, that a just transition means that the new industries, uh, government nationalise those industries, uh, that we build in our collective thought, that demand that um, manufacturing should be in the hands of the people, it should be in public ownership for these new industries. We know neoliberal policy hasn't worked because the planet's dying. The rich have got richer than like no time in history before. So we know that we're on the right track. The whole system finds itself when the next generations can't afford to uh, housing security, to job security, or to any meaningful, dignified future without our collective uh, uh, fight against the system that tries to departmentalise us, separate us, individualise us. Uh, now's the time that we come together, we say to the politicians and to government, we're not accepting it anymore. The MUA stands alongside with our communities and their right to stand up for our interests, to defend our interests and fight for a better world. So we're here with you, comrades. We will be here all the way through to the end and we'll fight these rotten governments that are bringing about laws that are more authoritarian, more police state powers, and we'll see them off for a better world. And lastly, here's Paddy Gibson. He's a great ally of the Gomorrah people and brings the climate rally to a close.
So we've worked this for Climate Action and at Jambana, two, you know, two areas of my life. We have both been working hard to support Gomori people in their fight against uh, Santos, major gas company, who are trying to establish 850 coal seam gas wells in their Pilbara Forest. It is. It's, a, it's an absolute disgrace. And there was a, a Gomorrah man, a strong Gomorrah man, Ian Brown, who's going to come and speak to you today. He couldn't come because of an emergency in the family. But I do have a statement uh, to read out some of the statement that I've been working on actually with Swell and Ty, a strong uh, Gomorrah woman from Coonabarabran in northwest New South Wales. I'm going to meet Suellen tomorrow actually and start doing some work with her and some of her elders about strengthening this solidarity and strengthening uh, this fight back. Uh, Sue, Sue Ellen says that with the election of the ALP, they had some hope that they'd see a change in approach from the Commonwealth regarding the Santos project. Morrison had backed it to the hilt with the gas-fired recovery, with an expedited approval process, with subsidies for the gas companies right across the country. But Labor campaigned hard on the need for climate action. There's also an Aboriginal woman, Linda Burney, as Minister for Indigenous Affairs, promising that the ALP policy will be guided by principles of Indigenous self-determination. We've heard from Albanese that he's leading calls for a referendum to create a voice to Parliament, which he says will provide a remedy to the tyranny of powerlessness suffered by Aboriginal people. But despite this, as spiralling global gas prices started to impact on Australia back in June, Labor Resources Minister Madeleine King confirmed her government's unequivocal support for Santos in the So once again, the sacred places of Gomorrah people are on the sacrificial chopping block as a solution for a crisis not of our making. King did not even acknowledge Gomorrah opposition to Santos or a current case before the Native Title Tribunal where Santos are moving to override the Native Title title rights of Gomorrah people in order to establish this whole line. So Anthony Albanese has been celebrating uh, that the myth of Terra Nullius has been cast aside in his speech at Gama. But Gomorrah people and our aspirations do not exist. Why would we have any faith this government would act on the wishes of a voice to Parliament if Albanese's own ministers are so cavalier in dismissing Gomorrah voices and our rights? She goes on to talk about the strong opposition to coal seam gas mining, not just amongst Gomorrah people, but amongst all communities in the region. And that's just what I just wanted to come in on, I think is a very important moment of solidarity that's actually happening with the Gomorrah struggle. Paul Keating's played a very important role in this. I'd like to acknowledge the Maritime Union. Workers for Climate Action have been campaigning for a very long time. We currently have a situation where CFMEU construction the MUA, all of the education unions in this country, the United Workers Union, the Electrical Trades Union, are all saying that they stand with Gomorrah to oppose the Santos project. And in fact, in fact, Union New South Wales has even passed a resolution of opposition to what Santos is trying to do, overriding Gomorrah native title rights. And I think most significantly, we've had a commitment from the Electrical Trades Union that their workers will not work on a project that's opposed by the traditional owners. And to just finish on this, in 1972, on these steps here, in July of 1972, there was a sit-in organised by Aboriginal people as a moratorium for Aboriginal rights, where ship painters and dockers, walkies, construction workers, teachers, students, went on strike, walked off their workplaces to come and stand with Aboriginal people 50 years ago, right here at Town Hall. It's up to all of us to rebuild that power. What is the power? If Labor isn't going to stop new coal and gas mines, we're going to stop new coal and gas mines. in everything we need to repair the damage that's been done you know, to the climate. So solidarity with the Gomorrah, Workers for Climate Action are just one of many groups who are moving to organise another rally on the 24th of September, Saturday the 24th, right here at Town Hall. Get involved in organising that. I think it's a really good first step, this rally, for bringing groups together after the election. Let's keep working together. And when we hear that the Native Title Tribunal makes any move against Gomorrah rights, we'll be back out on the streets as well. This song is Petition by Tom Hume.
our own David Spratt in conversation with a British podcaster called Nick Breeze. We are broadcasting their conversation about the tipping point dominoes which should ground all our climate action in hard reality. Thank you to Nick for permission to rebroadcast his work. You can find his other interviews at Climate Gen. In this Climate Gen episode, I'm speaking with the Research Director of the Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration in Melbourne, David Spratt, about assessing climate risk and why incremental tweaks to reduce emissions are failing us. We also discuss IPCC forecasts, political failure and how change is possible, but it requires a huge mobilisation of resources, coupled with public and political participation and leadership of the Zelensky variety. The clock is ticking, parts of the system are tipping. Whether you call it code red, an emergency or blah blah blah, no one is immune from the cascade of climate impacts that we will face if we continue to do nothing to avert the growing threat of climate change this decade and into the future. Thanks for listening to Climate Gen, especially at a time when there is so much violence and the threat of escalation of war. The pain that this is causing so many is inextricably linked to corruption and fossil fuels that extend well beyond Putin's regime. I would very much like to express solidarity with the Ukrainian people as well as with Russians who are standing up to the regime. All of this underlines the necessity for compassion, new leadership, new thinking and essentially a new way of existing as a component of the natural world. Please do subscribe, share, support via Patreon or do whatever you can to stay connected. Thank you. David, it's really good to speak to you today. I mean, your morning, my evening. I want to start 
really talking about what you've been writing about recently on tipping points and you identified processes relating to tipping point domino effects or cascades. Can you define what you mean just by these terms? Technically, a tipping point is where an aspect of the Earth system, for example, uh, polar ice sheets, or uh, it could be the Amazon, uh, it could be co- it could even be coral reefs, where it's reached a state where you don't need any further external energy or force for that system to move from one state to another. So, for example, even if you didn't put any more greenhouse gases in the air now, we stopped where we were and temperature stayed where it was, Arctic sea ice would continue to diminish in summer and Greenland would continue to melt. So it requires no ex- extra external forcing for the system to move from one discrete state to another. And then we get those... Um, those system changes connecting to each other. I mean, which we see most clearly in the in the Arctic, where we've seen that um, Arctic warming, which is now four degrees, uh, four times the global average, uh, has reduced the amount of summer sea ice, uh, the ice that floats on on the surface of the ocean, a crust of ice by three quarters by volume in summer. That, of course means a lot of white ice gets uh, replaced by dark sea and you get a lot more absorption through the change in the reflectivity. That then is one of the reasons why we get this extra uh, warming in the Arctic. But then that, of course, also produces heat on Greenland, which is, as your recent interviews with Jason Box has shown, he says he's now past the point of system stability, technically <laughs> past the tipping point. We see that Greenland is pouring a lot of cold water into the North Atlantic. That's one of the processes that's helping to slow down the Gulf Stream, the Atlantic Meridian overturning system. And we know that changes in those circulations are even affecting precipitation in the eastern Amazon. So we see that a change in one system echoes or has domino effects through other systems. We've just had this recent IPCC report out, and, and your work is largely about assessing risk. Can you talk about, firstly, your approach to risk analysis and how does it compare, say, with policymakers' approaches and the advice to policymakers, if you like? This could take two hours to the short version. The problem is that risks, and risk is the likelihood of an event multiplied by its damage. So even though, for example, a nuclear war up to a week ago seemed very unlikely, we consider it a big risk because the damage is so extreme. Uh, so the really big risks lie at the, at the top end of, of the range of, of possibilities. But this is not the way that the IPCC has seen it. We have become normalised to this view that we've heard for 20 years. We've got a 50% chance not exceeding two degrees with this carbon budget. We've got a 50 or 66% chance of staying below one and a half degrees with this carbon budget. This is catastrophically wrong. We would not put children on an aeroplane. We would not put them in a swimming pool. We would not let them swim in the ocean if there was a one in two or one in three chance of failure. But this has been normalised in policymaking and it's really, really wrong. John Schellenhuber, who you have interviewed, said... When the risks are existential, and clearly they are, I mean, I mean, the UN Secretary General, uh, everybody now knows that climate change, if we get in the range of three to four degrees, and 60% of the scientists at the moment saying, think we're heading for three degrees plus, will destroy human civilization, not the human species, but human civilization. When the risks are existential, you can't say, oh, look, on average, it'll be all right. You have to look at what are the worst possibilities. You know, in the Ford for a report we did a couple of years ago on scientific reticence in the IPCC, Sheldon Hooper said, in these critical instances, calculating probabilities doesn't matter. What matters is the high-end possibilities. So when you talk about 50% or 66% or 70%, this is the probability. This is what's most likely to happen. But there's a problem with that. For example, if you have a carbon budget that says we can put up 70 billion more tonnes of carbon dioxide for two degrees, that has a 10% chance of four degrees. 50% chance of staying below two degrees is 10% chance of reaching four degrees. Now, we wouldn't get in a lift if there's a 10% chance of, of the lift not opening again. So the question is, why do we accept risks and probabilities? And this is not just scientists, it's climate advocates as well. Why do we accept risks with the system 
with the Earth system that we wouldn't accept in our own lives. So we really have to look at the high-end possibilities. This is, this is the core of existential risk management. What is the worst that can happen and what do we have to do to prevent it? That is the only question that needs to be asked. And if you look at the latest IPCC report, that is clearly not happened. Uh, I happened to be reading it yesterday and there was one thing that really struck me about it. Uh, and they're talking about this question of, of non-linear responses of cascades. And I'll quote it. There is no evidence of such nonlinear responses at the global scale of climate projections for the next century, which indicate a near linear response. So this is this is them talking about hothouse earth. There is no evidence of nonlinear responses in the system in the next century. I mean, this is just wrong. In fact, everybody knows that the uh, emissions from permafrost are non-trivial at the moment. We know that warming in, in the last um, decade has been higher than in previous decades. The system is about to warm at an accelerating rate. We're at the edge of major systems changing state. And the IPCC comes out and says, there is no evidence for us moving into non-linear change. I mean, this is absurd. So you're basically saying here that the, that wording itself is misleading. Yeah, and here's, here's the problem. They're saying there's nothing in our projections that say that the response is non-linear, but their projections are based on models which can't deal with non-linear processes. So we can't actually model this, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We might be a fairer. <laughs> yes, if you said these processes exist, there's some evidence that they're active. We have not been able to incorporate properly the, um, the disintegration of, uh, of ice sheets in particular uh, in Greenland and West Antarctica. Uh, but the paleo evidence would tell us that in the long run, each one degree of warming produces 10 to 20 metres of sea level rise. That would be that would be legitimate. Do you think this is a fundamental point of why policymakers are not getting the right information, perhaps? I think the problem is that some people would see the IPCC reports as presenting pure science. This is just the science. But it's not. It's the IPCC is a political body. It is it is run by diplomats representatives of 180 governments around the world. Those political representatives appoint the lead authors. And so it, it runs down the chain. And so the IPCC is the intersection of policy and politics. And it is really clear that scientists in producing those reports try and produce reports which are relevant to policymakers. And the classic example is 1.5 degrees. I mean, if we think until... 1.5 degrees was put into the political system in Paris in 2015. Up till that point, there was almost no scientific research. There was no mention of 1.5 in IPC reports. It was all two and three and, you know, 450 ppm and 550 ppm. And it was a political body, the Paris Agreement, that said to the IPC, the scientists, go away and produce a report on 1.5. I mean, this is clearly politics leading the science, and this is the problem. And scientists, as has been articulated many times, say they feel they have to be relevant, they feel they have to censor a bit, because if they say what they really think, they won't be authors and they won't be listened to. This is possibly why we're in 2022 and we've made zero progress and the emissions continue to go up and, and no one seems to have a, a very clear path out of this mess. I mean, you've mentioned a different way of looking at the risk in terms of moving away from probability and more to possibility. Is that the foundation of a way to, to really cut through this problem? It has to be said there are many, a minority, but many great scientists who are really calling it out. I mean, you've done interviews with John Schellenhuber, published in The Ecologist, where he said, when the issue is the survival of civilization conventional means of analysis may be useless. That's what he said to you three or four years ago. I mean, that is absolutely true. And when he says conventional means of analysis, he's talking about the sort of things we get in the IPCC reports, where the emphasis is on the middle of the range possibilities. I mean, what is happening, and Jason Box has said it to you, is that things are changing uh, faster than forecast. An early IPCC report said Antarctica would be stable for a thousand years. It just wasn't true. I remember in 2007, and, and Richard Alley is a very good glaciologist, when there was the really big melt of, of sea ice in 2007, uh, Richard Alley exclaimed, it's melting 100 years ahead of schedule. No, it wasn't. <laughs> the scientific understanding was 100 years behind the physical reality. 
And so we have this, this, this problem of having to rethink these things. What is, what is feasibly the worst thing that can happen in Antarctica? What is feasibly the worst thing that could happen in Greenland, in, in, in the Arctic? And that's the question that Sir David King uh, your, the former uh, British uh, chief scientist has been asking, and it's why he's come out and said, we've got three or four years to save this problem or it's too late. And what he's really talking about, he's saying, if we look at the Arctic now, the dynamics there now are such that, uh, as Jason Box says, Greenland is past its tipping point and it will get worse as it gets warmer. Permafrost is starting to mobilise. I don't think it's at a critical stage yet, but it's not, there's not a, it's not zero and he's saying unless the arctic gets to be cooler than it is now to try and preserve sea ice in summer and stop this really accelerating then the system will run away from us and he says therefore we need to find ways and persuade governments to try and cool the arctic they're looking at marine cloud brightening i don't know whether it will work or not i certainly hope it will because i think he's right if mm -hmm. we get to circumstances which people think we will in 10 years or so of a sea ice free summer in the arctic that will just drive changes that will be unstoppable. I mean, uh, I mean, the famous paper that was put out a few years ago about hothouse earth, which is circumstances where the feedbacks and the cascades and the compounding events get to a point where even humans stopping their own emissions don't stop the system producing more and more warming. So it's self-warming without further human damage contributing to it. They said, when they produced that paper, this tipping point, this hothouse earth trigger could exist between 1.5 and 2. Then the paleo evidence suggests that. We're going to be at 1.5 in a decade from now, regardless of emissions in the next 10 years. 1.5 around 2030 is locked in, partly because of the aerosol dilemma. So, I mean, we're a decade away from what King and the hothouse earth authors worry, that the system will just accelerate. Street CR Community Radio, 855 AM. That kind of brings us neatly back to where we are now and countless government bodies, social bodies, you name it, around the world have been declaring climate emergency. And I just wanted to ask you, you've had some involvement with this term specifically. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. But also, how do you close the gap between declaring <laughs> climate emergency uh, and, uh, and appropriate action that would indicate that it really is an emergency? The growing gap between word and deed. Yes, I mean, many years, too many years ago now, 14 years ago, we published a book called Climate Code Red, The Case for Emergency Action, which probably first codified the idea of a climate emergency. And certainly in our thinking, it was the idea that you could not solve this problem with business as usual, that this actually required a huge application of resources very quickly. I mean, the most obvious analogy was the, the war economy. Simply because, for example, in the Second World War, I mean, Germany and Japan got up applying two thirds of their GDP to the war, even in the US and places like Australia, it was 30%. But I mean, this idea that there is an overwhelming threat that simply has to be the first priority of the society. Now, it doesn't have to be the war. It's a poor analogy, particularly at the moment. But you can you can see it in the transformation of what are called the Asian tiger economies. I mean, the way China transformed itself in 20 years, Korea and so on, where through state leadership, there is this single-minded application of resources, of policy to produce a major change in the way the society works. And the work we did got picked up in the United States by the climate mobilisation. It got back to XR in the UK, who I think really uh, popularised it, and Greta took it up. So, I mean, it was good that that term was, was understood. But then, of course, the more you get into mainstream politics, the more it, it becomes subverted. And that's exactly what's happened. And many, many good phrases had a bad outcome. So that's the problem. Do you really think it's something that we have to approach from the top down? I mean, these climate movements have grown up. Maybe it's to do with COVID. Maybe it's to do with other factors that things have kind of moved sideways. And I mean, in the UK, political leadership may as well not turn up for work it's so bad so i mean expecting them to do anything responsible about climate leadership seems to be a critical issue but is it a system block at the moment do you think well look, absolutely i mean i think what underlies this more than anything else is that the system is wedded to the idea that there can be incremental non-disruptive change path to the solution and i don't think that's 
true any longer. It might have been true 20 years ago when we had to decarbonise at 1% or 2% per year. At the moment, if we look at it, global emissions are still going up which means that all the decarbonisation that's going on with wind and solar and electric cars and more energy efficiency, all that is doing is producing energy for growth. So if the global economy is growing at 2% a year and we change 2% of the energy system to renewables, then use the same amount of energy every year. And that's our problem. Kevin Anderson and others in, in the UK have said that countries with uh, higher per capita emissions, and the UK is half what we are in Australia, we're up in the, the Saudi Arabia category of emissions here because we're the second or third largest export of fossil fuels in the world. We, with our high per capita emissions, really have to be here in, in under 10 years to zero. I mean, you're talking about 10%, 10% reduction in emissions per year. We're having trouble doing two at the moment. There's no way the system, as it presently is, with its emphasis on hands-off by the government, set some price mechanisms, set a few regulations, let, let the market decide, it's not going to work. It hasn't worked. The evidence is there. So absolutely we need leadership. I mean, that's been the incredible thing about Ukraine. The, the leadership, political leadership, has changed the story in Ukraine. I don't know what the outcome will be. It may be very grim. But the world was really ready to give up on Ukraine. I mean, two days into the war, Joe Biden was saying, oh, Zelensky, would you like a helicopter lift out of Kiev to uh, a safer place? And he said, no, we're here to fight. And it just changed the story. I mean, Zelensky is sort of the Churchill moment in a way. So to answer your question, there has to be political leadership, but that leadership will only come when there is huge public pressure. So I think it's both. It's not either or. And what I fear and my experience is that those in the elite, whether it's in business or in politics, simply, I think, do not understand the problem as it really exists. They really believe that we're heading to 1.5, that 1.5 to 2 degrees is in the system. You ask them about hothouse Earth, they, they wouldn't know. You'd say Greenland's past its tipping point and so is West Antarctica and they'd be quizzical. I mean, there is a profound ignorance because the whole IPCC UNFCCC process tells a story about incrementalism being successful when it's clearly not. It feels like a massive challenge for activism to come up with ways, to create ways to, to, to force this harder. I mean, it seems that there is a responsibility going back to the public and public agency. I think there's a problem because there's a part of the climate movement which is wonderful. I mean, I think Greta really changed the story. And, and you're right, COVID really, really displaced a whole lot of activism and the momentum has to build up again. I think XR's done an incredible job in the UK and inspiring people internationally to say, tell the truth. You know, let's, let's have an honest conversation about this. But there's also a very professional climate advocacy industry. And I call it an industry. There's a whole lot of rich, fairly rich organisations with lots of fundraisers and comms people and a lot of well-paid campaigners who have just got stuck inside the beast, who think that the big thrill every year is to go to COP. And to repeat, uh, we had the problem here in Australia um, 18 months ago where the movement was saying net zero 2050. And we were saying, this is bullshit. This is construction. Because uh, net zero is, if you look at the REA reports, is actually 40 to 50% fossil fuels still by 2050 with a whole lot of scam offsets and drawdowns and things that don't really exist. And we're saying, this is bullshit. They said, no, no, net zero is where the, where the movement's going. That will be the international outcome. Australia's got to be aligned with the international outcome. Our movement's got to be aligned with everybody else's alignment. And it's, it's delusionally bad. So I think we have a problem that large amounts of the professional climate advocacy industry have been swallowed by the whale. This is my sort of last question to, to close on, really. Contemplating cascading tipping points that if if triggered are going to lead to global calamity for humans and many other species. When you contemplate this, it, it, it creates a sense of inescapable fear. And I noticed in one of your papers that I was looking at, you highlight fear as a big motivator, but you also highlight hope. What are the hope elements that you see as emergent through all of this? I actually don't think it's hope or fear. I mean, this has been the big debate in the movement. Lots of people like to do bright siding, particularly the NGOs. It's all going well, clean energy, lots of jobs. It's all going to be fine. And then the fear mongers who are the problem too. I won't name them, but uh, we just say we're all effed and there's nothing we can do about it. That's really unhelpful as well. So I think we've got a problem on, on each end. I, I think if we look at 
how you engage people, it's fear and hope. If you look at, for example, public health promotion, engagement over a long period of time, smoking, AIDS, whatever, it's yes, fear, you're going to die if you keep on smoking, but here's the path out of it. You can stop smoking, and if you do, your lungs will get better. And here's the first step you take. Ring this hotline. So in all public health, there is fear, answer, path from fear to, to solution. And I think that's what we need here. And, and that's why I think talking about the climate emergency is still right, because it gives people a sense of the scale and the speed that is necessary. Because what people are really disillusioned about is the idea that what governments are doing now is anywhere near the problem. And that's why they're depressed and why there's another whole industry, which is climate grief uh, <laughs> coming up. I think that what Greta did, and I hope her, her successes, she and her successes can remobilise, has really called it out. They have been really honest, really truthful. She's never right-sided. She's been really frank about what's going on. I think that frankness is really important. I mean, to be honest, the UN Secretary-General is more frank uh, than most of the scientists <laughs> writing an IPCC report. So I think there are elements of the elite who are really getting it. What will change? I don't know. Maybe we need a Zelensky for climate. That's a very good place to, <laughs> a thought to end on. So then, thank you very much. It's been great to talk to you. And... Thank you very much, Nick. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Climate Action Show. Our guests were... Erica Chernoweth in conversation with Shankar Vedantam in The Hidden Brain, to Abigail Boyd, Rilke, Paul Keating and Paddy Gibson at the Sydney Climate Rally of August the 7th, and lastly to David Spratt and Nick Breeze on Climate Gen. That is spelled G-E-N-N. Now please check our website, Climate Action Show 3CR for links and further reading. Let us know what climate action you are taking. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is coal. Don't be afraid. The Don't treasure. be scared. It's coal. It's coal. It's coal. Tune in every Monday at 5pm to hear the Climate Action Radio Show. It is important to stay up to date with your COVID-19 vaccinations, including your booster dose. Getting a booster means you'll increase your protection against severe disease and continue protecting your loved ones and community against COVID-19. You can get your free COVID-19 booster dose if you received your second dose of a COVID-19 vaccination at least three months ago. To book an appointment, visit australia.gov.au or call 1-800-020-080 and select 8 if you need an interpreter. Visit health.gov.au or speak to your doctor to find out when you are eligible. Authorised by the Australian Government Canberra a 3CR supporter. We're up against, we're all responsible if we